Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, delighted as always from the Santa Monica Studios to bring you another great episode with some great conversations of experts in the game. First up, one of my favorite people in the game, Blair Henley, a reoccurring guest on this show. Blair does it all in every sense of the word in the tennis world. Was at Stadium 3 at Indian Wells. She's an on-court interviewer. She's a stadium announcer. She covers the game and promotes it admirably. We're going to talk about the last couple of months. She was at the Labor Cup. We dive into that. The Houston Clay Court Championships and uh, the Fed Cup tie that she was just at in Florida between the U.S. and Austria. And then it's Vance Fermani joining the show for the first time. One of the sharper minds covering the sport, huge social media presence, co-host of the Tennis and Bagels podcast. He's known for looking at the game differently through analytics, through stats. We talk about how he sees the sport that he did play at a high level. We recap the Monte Carlo Masters, which saw Andre Rublev get his first 1,000-level title. We talked about Holger Rune's dynamic game, Novak Djokovic's health, Taylor Fritz and Yannick Sinner inching closer. Lots to break down in the men's game with Vance Fermani. We're Henley up first. My name is Mitch Michaels. This is Tennis Channel Inside In. Let's start the show. All right, now on the Tennis Channel Inside In podcast, Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios. We're joined by a recurring guest, one of my favorite people in tennis to talk to. Uh, you can pretty much see her everywhere there's tennis played. The Instagram bio just says tennis mostly. Enough said there. Uh, Blair Henley back on the show now, fresh off the Fed Cup tie in Florida. Blair, always a treat for me. Thanks for coming on the show. Mitch, great to see you again. This has been a long time coming, so glad we're finally doing this. Yeah, and I was a little worried because just if you're not on social media, Blair got shouted out by Pagula and Coco this week, so I thought I thought I might <laughs> lose her as a guest, but no, she's very reliable. But uh, going mainstream, going big time, uh, props for that and just the, another great experience covering the United States women. And props for them for just putting that on social media. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't yeah. even tag Coco in the photo that she just very nicely said, we heart Blair. And I was like, I mean, <laughs> people don't know this about me because I'm generally pretty smiley and, and bubbly. And I think the, the perception is possibly that I am happy most of the time. And I am, I have a lot to be thankful for, but I would say that in general, my like baseline is kind of more on the pessimistic, yeah. harder side, <laughs> uh, which I feel like I like burst people's like whole perception of me when I tell them that, but yeah. that warmed my cold icy heart when I saw <laughs> that uh, because it just, I never expect that sort of thing. I go out and do my job and I hope that over time you end up actually connecting with these athletes as people, not just the athletes, right. the people behind the scenes. It's like one of the parts of my job that I love the most. And I feel like at this point of my, in my life and my career, I'm seeing more and more, uh, but to just feel like there is sort of a personal connection there means a ton. Yeah. And that meant a lot to me. Um, so sweet Coco and Jess and man, the U S is lucky to have them as leaders um, for American tennis right now on, on both the women's side and the men's side. Yeah. I love 
Jess in her post-match interview. I'm already going to go on a tangent, but <laughs> I thought this was great. I, you know, she only had her first Billie Jean King Cup win, I think it was last year. Right. And so I mentioned that, hey, it wasn't long ago that you were the rookie on this team, and now you're the top-ranked player on tour. And she goes, I just want to thank you for saying that I am the top ranked player on tour because people think it's just women, but no, it's the women <laughs> and the men. Yeah. Yeah. She, I mean, uh, she handles it great at everything, like takes losses in stride. It's funny with everything with about her place in the game, in society with where she comes from. And yeah, that tour comment, I know we're not unified ATP WTA for a lot of different reasons. Some widgets, some not, but there is some banner there, and she wants to let Francis and Taylor know, "Hey, I'm the I'm the top ranked player." Uh, when she's not roasting Ta uh, Francis's jump shot, she wants to just get those digs in when she can. Let me tell you though, <laughs> she may roast Francis, but that yeah. was that was one of the first things I said to yeah. to Jesse when I saw her in Delray. Is before I left Houston because I went, you know, I was only home for like a day and a half before yeah. I flew to Delray. Uh, Francis asked me who of course won in Houston. He said, so where are you going next? Uh, you can always rely on Francis yeah. will always ask about your life, by the way. Like there are very few, I would say professional athletes who will ask you questions back. Mm -hmm. Francis is one of them. And that's not to stereotype professional athletes. It's just, yeah. you're, you're in that zone where you're supposed to be asking them questions or whatever it is. It's, it's, I would say unusual for a player to be like, so what's next for you? <laughs> Francis has done that since he was 18 years old. So uh, he's yeah. like, what's what's coming yeah. up next? And I said, well, I'm headed to Florida for Billie Jean King Cup. And he said, oh, you get to hang out with the goat Pagula. And yeah, I was like, yeah. yes, yeah. <laughs> I do get to hang out. I don't know if we'll actually do any hanging out, but I yeah. get to at least spend a little bit of time with uh, the person that apparently Francis and the rest of the United Cup team calls the goat Pagula. Um, he could not say enough great things. You know, she's the realist. She's the absolute realist. You know, she's teaching him how to be his own agent. I don't know if you saw after Houston, he posted a picture yeah. in Chick-fil-A getting Chick-fil-A breakfast. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, Chick-fil-A, hook me up. Yeah, and that was perfect. A message. Yeah, saying to Jesse, you know, like, see, see, Jess Pagula, I'm being my own agent. So, man, Jesse Pagula just imparting her knowledge on both sides of the tour, and we love to see it. Do you think where we are with like women's American tennis, I mean, it's, I don't want to say as good a place because we're just following the Williams sisters and, and that just historic run, but it's kind of insane that they're able to just, we're able to just have this new run. Like it, usually there's a dip is what I'm trying to say. Like Spain, men's tennis, notwithstanding, how do you follow Roger Federer? How do you follow different eras? And it's kind of just nuts that we have Pagula Coco to just run right into the Williams sisters and the fact that they're willing to play these Fed Cup events because you know a lot of top players and understandably so just can't commit or just won't commit to the grind of another international tie not for ranking points but here are girls just going for it yeah no I, I think it's huge and also the fact that the rest of that team was Sonia Kennan who's been ranked as high as four in the world still mm -hmm. looking to find her her form mm -hmm. in the past year or two uh Danielle Collins who also maybe not playing her best tennis right now but who's been ranked seven in the world um, Katie McNally, who has reached two uh, doubles Grand Slam finals um, and who is playing much better singles at the moment, by the way. I I, I mean, it's pretty incredible what the depth that uh, Kathy Rinaldi has to work with. And I actually asked her that in the last post-match interview. I said, Kathy, like, obviously this is great, but this makes your job <laughs> harder, yeah. right? And she's like, yes, it's like one of the hardest parts of my job is 
is is trying to decide excuse me is trying to decide which combination of players is going to make the best team because right. you have so many to choose from got some good doubles players on there too we know taylor townsend mcnally was there as well so there, there's there's opportunities galore uh collins i just i just want to share my dc story because i don't have as many nearly as you but i love we, it we were in san diego and you know it's known that she's a fearless player and she doesn't care I was sitting with Kamal Murray. We were doing some production interview stuff, and it was about players that'll play anyone. And we we're just like, yeah. And then there's DC who will play just about anyone. She's stretching before her match. She hears us, just pops her head in. She's like, you know, I'll play anyone. I'm not scared. And then just goes right back to stretching. I was like, that's a perfect DC story. Like, just unabashedly brave, you know, whether or not she's playing her best tennis. So, yeah, the depth is just outstanding for women's American tennis. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, we mentioned off air, just the crowd in mm -hmm. Delray. I wasn't totally sure what to expect. Mm -hmm. I've done, you know, I did the men's tournament there for six years. So I've seen great crowds toward the end of the tournament. Mm -hmm. I've seen some mm -hmm. thin crowds for the first few days of the tournament. Uh, and, and the turnout was really fantastic, even given <laughs> was a wild first day where there oh. was rain coming in. I don't know if you yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. was aware. You have not lived, Mitch, until you have been mid-ceremony. And, and the opening ceremonies for Billie Jean King Cup and Davis Cup for the U.S. are, are pretty involved. I mean, there are flags. We've got a drum line. Sometimes we have um, steam or pyro or something like that. And so we get, and it's a heavy lift as far as the voiceover part goes. And that's what I'm doing. And so there is, you know, I'm talking over a drum line. We've got walkout music. Side note, Team Austria walked out to rock me on the dais, which I thought was <laughs> wow. hilarious. Wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's I good. thought it was a joke at first. And then they're like, it's not a joke. I was like, that's fantastic. Uh, so I'm talking over all that. There's like buzz in the stands. And we get to, I'm reading out loud Jessica's, uh, you know, Jesse's bio. I get to the end from Buffalo, New York. And my producer is talking semi-frantically in my ear saying, we've got to go straight into evacuation read. <laughs> <laughs> from Buffalo, New York, Jessica Pagula. Everybody Ladies leave. And yeah, you must ask that you leave. We actually yeah. had to ask them to leave the site. That was part of the mm. emergency protocol in the area. Your lives are in danger. That we didn't actually say that, but that's essentially what we were saying. <laughs> Went from like full drum line, like peak Jessica Pagula. The to sirens going off. Yeah. The stadium. Yeah. Wow. It was. It, I actually looked up in time to see the uh, actually Jesse and Coco just like burst out laughing because it was almost comical. And thankfully, half an hour later, we get everybody back on court. Michaela Bryan sang the national anthem. Talk about a full circle moment. Um, and it was a great night of tennis. Um, Coco, who had a ton of pressure, I felt coming in hometown player, uh, you know, on paper, expected to win. Mm -hmm. And she came out and she performed and as, as did Jesse. And she had this massive rush of people waiting to get autographs from her afterward. It just was a, I love so much when, you know, the women's game is showcased and people right. appreciate the value that it brings because it is so fun and it is so exciting and it's professional sport and people who right. get that make me very happy. I also feel like it's good to have players seeing the legends just speak and be there. So when you had Billie Jean King, when you had Chrissy Everett talk, just being around for that moment is good for 
just your professionalism, if that makes sense. Like it was just great for players and the Austrian players too, to just be a part of those moments. Yeah. I mean, honestly, having Billie Jean King anywhere, it's like automatically <laughs> elevate whatever yeah. you're doing. But there was this dinner that I did not get to go to, but had I known it was happening, I might've like, you know, snuck in, snuck in yeah. the kitchen because they had several, they honored several former Billie Jean King cup players in Delray beach. And there was this sort of group dinner and I don't know who started it, but the request was, can you tell a story from your time playing? And so Billie Jean King told a story, like the kind of yeah. stories that you would tell, like it makes me think of like my Rice Women's Tennis group chat, this, the ridiculous things that we did as a mm -hmm. team or that our coach said or whatever, like those kinds of stories. Chrissy Everett was there, um, Andrea Leanne, Andrea Yeager was there and, and these amazing legends and women who've experienced so much in their careers went up there and just told these behind the scenes stories. And I think it was a really cool experience for the younger American players. I want to, on this show now, kind of go backwards and, and, you know, you've had a lot of duties and jobs since the last time we've spoken. Uh, of course, I can't leave out Indian Wells because Stadium 3 is kind of your party zone. It's where it goes crazy. I was only there a few brief days, wasn't able to make it out. Although when I was there walking into the main stadium, I heard the buzz of the Andrescu-Payton Stearns match. And that kind of just got us going to... A weekend like no other. I feel like you attract just chaos to that court because it's always the latest. It's always the most bizarre. It's got the sound bites where you got Kvitova to say that, yeah, sorry, I agree with Medvedev. Like these courts are slow and, and not my style. But what what's it like being there and just embracing the chaos of Stadium 3? It is kind of chaos, and I do kind of love it. It was just to give you a little backstory. My producer on that court uh, came from the world of the Olympics and figure mm -hmm. skating. And uh, Linda and Brenda, whose last name is, how the, are they the escaping? Fertova, the Fertova. Yes, thank yeah. you. Oh, my gosh. So yeah. uh, Linda comes out to play Shahar, um, uh, excuse me, Meyer Sharif. I am a mess today. Clearly, <laughs> it's right. I am it's not okay. it's a long, It was a long time ago. So It was a long know. time ago. She, she comes out to play Meyer Sharif and says to me, because I am the only person <laughs> who looks like they're in charge over there. I don't know that I really look that way, but she looks at me and says, can I use the restroom? And I'm like... <laughs> I don't run this tournament. That's like yeah. not my call. So she just turns around and books it. Well, there's poor Meyer Sharif sitting there getting asked for autographs, people taking selfies. <laughs> match, yeah. and so it is, it's the wild west out there. I have embraced it though. I, I love the matches that we get on that court. And uh, yeah, we got some really, I mean, some barn burners out there this year. You mentioned the Andrescu match. Bianca is, and I think Peyton Stearns is on the way to becoming this, but Bianca is so showtime. It's mm -hmm. unbelievable. The electricity when she plays, she draws the fans like off the bat. People right. are there waiting for her to come to the court. Yeah. Um, and of course, I'm slightly partial because at the end, she was like, I like your puffer coat yeah which, it was also freezing that that weekend it too, was so. massive and obnoxious <laughs> and ob not but no joke it's probably the fa my favorite thing that fila has ever given to me and i was like thank you so much people have given me a hard time for wearing this in indian well she's like oh like girl i'm from canada and i'm a big fan so yeah. i felt very justified by bianca andrescu and um i hope she feels better soon it sounds like she is gonna be back soon yeah oh i was also gonna say too that Sakari loved it as well. And I was, you know, it made sense because she, you know, after six espresso shots was like, I love playing on stadium three. <laughs> she has cut down. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you know that. That's this. probably doctor's uh, orders, I would, Im I would imagine. 
like legitimately when when one of somebody in her team saw the episode they were like that's probably not good (laughs) so apparently she's cut down on the espresso introducing coco golf's signature shoe more than just a tennis shoe it's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette it's designed to enhance speed and power on the court the multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out the coco cg1 empowers you to dominate the game learn more and purchase the coco cg1 at newbalance.com more with blair henley here on tennis channel inside in uh and and another thing I want to mention, I know it was a long time ago, but you did one of the most remarkable things in tennis is you got Barbara Krachikova over to the masses for her personality. I don't know how you did it, but you, you found a way to showcase that at the WTA finals in Fort Worth is where it started and the budding friendship that we didn't know we needed. So I, that, that's one of the cool things too, is just being able to showcase personalities that are more low key or that the masses don't know about. How did that come to be and how did that start of you just finding her sitting in the same spot for every match? This will forever be one of my favorite tennis stories. First of all, I just love the fact, I mean, it's not the first time I've seen a player watching a match while they're still in the tournament, mm-hmm. but usually they're hidden. They're, they're sort of recessed up in the, up in the rafters, but she is literally right behind the court and the way that the court was set up in Fort Worth it wasn't, you weren't high off the court. I mean, you were, you were like eye level with the players off the court. Uh, So I just, where I was sitting, had a great view of where she liked to sit and just started taking pictures. So by the third picture, I'm like, if I don't tell her that this is happening, it's a little (laughs) bit weird. (laughs) That's what I was wondering is when did it become, when was she, I guess, in on it and embracing it? So it was probably after like photo number three, (laughs) I saw her in sort of the, the bowels of the stadium. And I said, Barbara, you know, that, that you're a star for your tennis viewing this week. And she said, no, I don't, I don't know. And so I pulled up, (laughs) pulled up my phone and showed her the thread. Uh, She got a kick out of it. We spent probably another 15 minutes just standing there in the hallway talking and It was one of those moments. I I think she has been someone who she has maybe felt that she was not as approachable as she actually is. And so I think that the fact that I just went up and struck up a conversation was like, hey, I'm taking photos of you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, did you revitalize her singles career? Some people are saying that because she kind of did go on a tear at the start of 2023. And, And I just love the fact that she's you know, different in terms of how she plays on the court talking now. Like, she's a great doubles player, why she was at the year-end finals to begin with. But the fact that she approaches the game so differently, someday she's going to run into a player like Sabalenka yesterday, but she has a different approach, different style, and I think it's so refreshing to see someone that kind of goes against the grain stylistically. Yeah, yes, and I gravitate toward that. I love that, and that's really how I how I see my job is: can I give uh, these players a platform, or can I tee it up in a way that they can show their personality? And like I said earlier, it's one of the things that at this point in my career, it used to only happen on the court, and sometimes I'm enough of a familiar face for these moments to happen sometimes off the court as well. And I have so loved getting to know her. Um, 
Her tennis mind is incredible. Like talk about tennis IQ. Woof. If I had that much information floating around in my head, I would spontaneously combust on the tennis court. Uh, but she's she's incredibly smart on the court and off. And uh, yeah, being able to show that she's she's really funny, yeah. um, extremely insightful. The fact that she just donated her the money that she received from from the ITF to play Billie Jean King Cup to. Uh, relief in Turkey and Ukraine. I mean, I just feel like she's a, a well-rounded human. Mm -hmm. And listen, the more we can showcase those people, the better. It is just super refreshing that we have these different types of personalities. Like some are, you know, more highly strung, some are low key. I love, you know, not knowing what Ostapenko is going to look like when she comes out onto the court, the, the possibilities are endless. It's just, it's a nice mix. And the most important thing we were just having this discussion about Holger Rune is that a lot of them have the game to back it up. That's where it has to start is that you have to be winning some matches so we can keep talking about this. Yes, absolutely. I, um, I'm just thinking back as you're talking about like the different types of players. Um, one of my favorite interviews from Indian Wells since we're still sort of, well, I guess, it's Hang still, on. Yeah. I'm going back around the calendar. Uh, I did get, I, uh, Barbara did make it to Stadium 3, which was a, a nice mm -hmm. treat and good, really good to see her there. Um, also, I, I need to work on my line dancing, by the way, to wrap that topic mm -hmm. up because she put me to shame uh, on the court. Clearly, she had more experience in that department than I did when, when I sort of forced her to line dance on the tennis court in Fort Worth. Uh, <laughs> it was organic yeah. as I could have been, but right. like she took it like a champ. She put on that cowboy hat. Um, and and uh, to be clear, by the end of that Fort Worth tournament, we did get her a cowboy hat that fit her head. Uh, the, day, the day after the tournament ended, she was yeah. very disappointed because the one that she got for reaching the Devils final did not fit her. Uh, and mm -hmm. she was like, I you know, th this is like her goal to walk away with a cowboy hat that fit. Um, so yeah. the next day I'm local. I took my girls, picked her up. We went to the, the cowboy hat store and she got a hat that fit her. Yeah. So wow. um, that, that was the, that tied our little Fort Worth experience up in a bow. And I'm glad she has a cowboy hat that fits her head. I feel like the players enjoyed that experience playing in Fort Worth. And I know that a lot was made about the crowd support and maybe it wasn't promoted. I think there's two sides to it, right? Like the players enjoy these new markets and playing in popular cities that are quote unquote untraditional, but it is a, it is a problem to be solved, right? Like how can we grow the game in areas that are not traditional and people might not even know it's like you go to tennis, you get hooked, you become a fan, but how do we grow it in untraditional markets? It's still an issue. Totally. And you are correct that everyone from players to media, to the teams, uh, to the tour even really, really liked Fort Worth. And I, I know we're, we're going back to China, but I really do mm -hmm. feel that if Fort Worth was given another shot at it, whether it's the WTA finals or another WTA event, I think that it, if it were promoted, if it had the yeah. chance to be promoted for a decent period of time, I think it could have been massive um, because the fans who were there were extremely invested and extremely loud. And uh, I heard that after the event was over, after the finals, there were people who went to the box office and said, can I get tickets for next year? Mm. And it just makes me think like, people don't know unless you show them, yeah. like, you know, incentivize, get schools. That There are just a lot of things that I think had there been more time and maybe more funds, we we could have maybe built a little bit more, more momentum, but it just was a tough, scenario all the way around but yes it was for those of us who were there it was fantastic last thing i guess on the state of texas the houston final the houston clay court championships 
I know you're an optimistic person, mostly. There had to be some doubt that this tournament, like props to them just completing it, because I was worried. I thought cancellation was going to come, but going two matches each day, Tiafa wins it, Echeverry gets to the final. Just completing the event was remarkable in and of itself. I didn't know it was possible, Mitch. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I, you know, there had been prior tournaments. I've never had three washouts in a row. We got a tiny bit of tennis on day one of the string of three and it literally 15 minutes of tennis in on the third. Yeah. And that was just to finish the first round. We finished the first round on Friday afternoon and, and it was packed. The stands were mm -hmm. packed for the conclusion of round one mm -hmm. on Friday afternoon. Uh, I think it was th Thursday or Friday afternoon that all the days were blending together at some point, but such bad luck weather wise. And I felt so bad for everyone because especially on a 250, yeah. it's so the the team is so small and everyone has had their hands in every little detail of the planning and the special events that are involved you know you hope the players are still mm -hmm. i don't know not not that you go to a tournament to have fun but you hope that there's they're making the most of it it just i felt really bad for them but the fact that we played over 40 percent of the tournament in two days was a thing that I did not know you could do. And and thank goodness we didn't have any conflicts with doubles. I think there would have potentially been an issue had, I guess maybe not because the players could technically also play doubles. But I yep. think if you had somebody in the semis, for instance, who mm -hmm. was still in doubles or even in the final who was still in doubles, that would have been a tough physical ask. Uh, but the fact that that Echeverry Tiafo final was one of the best finals I've ever seen live. And it was the fourth match that both of them had played in two days says something about yeah. the athletes and how yeah. incredible they are. It was riveting. And when I tell you that that river Oaks crowd, Francis said it in one of his post-match interviews, it's like, I can hear you guys making your social plans. I can hear the champagne glasses <laughs> blinking. They are literally on the court. The, the first row of boxes to exit your box, yeah. you have to walk on the court to get out of it and it is a social event for a lot of the people who come to watch and so in general there's always sort of a buzz um there was one night where it was francis and dustin brown playing doubles and it was i felt like i was at a, a baseball stadium because there was just that that sort of buzz and the, it was yeah. like a party which which you know if you ask francis he loves oh, that he thinks yeah. it's fantastic that was the quietest I had ever heard that crowd was during that final. And it was a nighttime final, which for the reasons that it sometimes gets a little bit more buzzy in that stadium at night, I was even more shocked that it was as quiet as it was. And it was also as loud as I've ever heard it as far as the people, the fans reacting to how good the tennis was. And I got to do sideline reporting there. So I'm literally sitting on the court. I, I just couldn't have envisioned a better finish. And I'm almost glad it was a night match. It was after the masters was already over. I feel like mm -hmm. it for as rough as those few days of rain were, it finished in the absolute best possible way. It was riveting stuff. You mentioned it. And I did think the crowd kind of locked in. They're like, okay, this is the final let's, let's tone it down a little But Yeah. Francis is the one guy. Francis is the type of guy I should say that embraces noise and rowdiness and I know some players wouldn't another player who actually would didn't do that well but Tommy Paul you got to sit down with him and it's so yes. funny because I watched that and it was a great job as always he talked about art and different things that he's into I talked to his coach Brad Stein a couple weeks ago and one of the things that struck me is he said for all that Tommy Paul gets and you know what he's thought of he's got a very analytical brain like there's almost another side to him and 
you among others are kind of, you know, unleashing that to the masses. What was that experience like getting to talk to Tommy Paul and see, and hear about his other side? I have a funny backstory on this one. So I, this is an event that happens every year. It's the Houston NJTL gala fundraiser event. And every year it's sort of part of the deal that the tournament sends a player over to do a Q and a, this was the first time I had ever been the one sort of asking the questions, administering the Q and a, if you will, but I was given a run of show and I was reading the email. And then I get to the, the part where we're slotted in Blair with Tommy 25 minutes and you know like we're lucky to get five minutes with players 25 minutes on a stage at a gala with with tommy paul like great i'm excited for it i think this is going to be a unique opportunity to go more in depth but also i'm thinking from his perspective like poor guy (laughs) (laughs) so much that's a long q a um and and in sort of what what could be a a less comfortable it's not like we're sitting in a room together we're sitting on a stage in front of 300 people so we arrive at the hotel um the tournament director bronwyn greer who is unbelievable in houston and is really a big reason why players Mm -hmm. want to play that tournament because her leadership is so incredible Mm -hmm. we arrive there and we're like ready to go we're within sort of five, 10 minutes of our walk-on time are, you know, from the run of show. Right. And we're told we're running about 15, 20 minutes late. Mm. And our slot, by the way, was 8.40 p.m. to 9.05 p.m. So it's already late. And Tommy had just flown in that day, I believe. And I, in my mind, I mean, because, you know, we come from the world of you don't keep players waiting. Uh, but no. that this person who was telling us we were delayed <laughs> didn't seem particularly troubled by the fact that they were delayed. And I, in my head, I'm thinking like, that's not good. Tommy was like, that's okay. I'll just go get a water from the bar. (laughs) So he goes, gets his water. I sat with Bronwyn 15 ish, 20 minutes later, it's our time to go on. We got to go in depth talking about his personality, how he got started. He, he told the story about how after clay season last year, the way that he phrased it on stage is that, Uh, my coach threatened to leave me (laughs) and it was very much sort of like, you know, and it is, it's funny how on tour, those relationships are like almost like a familial type of relationship. And, and, you know, he's threatened to leave me. And I asked for clarification later in the week from, from Brad, I said, what can you give me this from your perspective? And he said, yeah, you know, last year at the beginning of grass season, uh, Brad told me this, he said, I, did not like the way that he was approaching tennis. And I gave him a few non-negotiables. And one was that he needed to compete every single day. He needed to compete. Uh, he also needed to respect the game, his team and his opponents in every match. He stepped out on the court. There were a couple of other things. Um, that, thank you to Brad for sending me a very detailed yeah. text, like detailing exactly uh, what happened in this interaction. But to Tommy's credit, he, made the adjustments and we've seen what's happened over the past year you know just talking about his the sheep the pictures of sheep that his mom is sending him that are being or lambs i guess that are being born on their farm uh talking about being roommates with riley opelka and also liking lucky charms uh, talking about teaching his girlfriend Paige tennis this is actually pretty funny (laughs) it's like i mean i kind of could do like the ground strokes the volleys but like we got to the serve 
I had no idea how to teach a serve. So yeah. I'm asking Brad, I'm asking people <laughs> on the team, like, how do I teach Just throw this? the ball up and hit it. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Yeah, exactly. So he said it made him think about the mechanics of tennis in a different way, having to to teach a beginner, which was, it was funny to hear him describe that. I joked, I was like, this is all being recorded. Uh, <laughs> so choose your words carefully. But yeah, Tommy is so chill that I think people sometimes think he's, flatline there's like the question of like is is he alive uh and the answer is if you've seen him in a tight match he's an incredible competitor he's really exciting to watch and personally he's a total delight uh what i my hope is though that more people know that like yeah. on the way out of this event i had more people say to me well i had no idea he was so lovely mm-hmm. That therein sort of lies the problem. And when you look at, you know, again, Instagram followers, it's one of many metrics, but he, it, relatively speaking, he doesn't have a ton. And I really do feel like, and I'm hoping maybe the Netflix show can help a little bit with this and just getting to know these players and why people should invest because there are more reasons than just his tennis yeah. that he is a fun player to follow. Very, he doesn't have that very gregarious personality, but yeah, it's the same reaction. Winning more matches and, and being more in the mainstream will help that, but same reaction after Australia. It was like, wow, I didn't know this guy was likable, good American, you know, comes from a good family we know. So props to him, and uh, again, great work there. I, I do want to wrap this up with a few different quick things here. Blair Henley on Tennis Channel Inside In. On the serious side, and I guess an emotional side, it's going to be tough to top, right, being at the Labor Cup and, and watching that moment last year. That, that, was, that was hard. It was hard for a lot of us of a certain generation. but yeah. And we all know what that moment is, like watching Roger go away and then watching Rafa's reaction to that. What was it like kind of being there, being in the building, experiencing just everything that we saw? I, my, my lasting memory of that night will be, and, and for those who don't know, my job there is sort of the behind-the-scenes cell phone video person. So I am like in the middle of the the tears. <laughs> and I, as I mentioned earlier, and am, am not a crier. I am a, just a little colder in that way. That sounds like a horrible way to describe myself, but that's it's probably true. And then I'm like, oh, wow, this is like hitting me. Once yeah. I saw Rafa sobbing and then Andy was holding back tears. Uh, so I am holding my cell phone if Someone can envision this trying to be as steady as possible (laughs) and also trying not to be intrusive in these really emotional, special moments. And I am like shaking, like if if you have like water in your ear, it's like shaking the tears out of the sides of my eyes (laughs) because I was like, I cannot be doing my job with like tears streaming down. Um, It was incredibly emotional and I think everyone there that night sort of had the feeling that we were experiencing something collectively that we mm-hmm. will probably never, I don't know that we'll ever see anything like that in, in tennis again. It was just it, really, really special. It was insane. And I've, I've said this before props. I don't know how he did it, but Jim Courier, just the best, how he was able to conduct that interview and just rein it in and also just navigate those waters. But yeah, it's, Look, whenever you say goodbye to a legend, and I, I get it from Rafa's perspective in the sense that it's a piece of him that he's letting go to, and you see the injuries with him now, and that these these mainstays, men or women, they don't. It doesn't last forever. You know, every athlete has an expiration date. So, 
Time's, uh, time's coming for all of us, Mitch. It is. And we're going to see. Nice Rod- thought for your day. <laughs> uh, yeah, great. That'll, that'll, just, that'll give me an extra spring in my step as we head into the weekend. Uh, the, you know, the thing with Rogers, we will see him at the Hall of Fame with Serena. I'm hoping that they figure out a way to stagger the classes because I don't, I don't know, one big class with them might be crazy. But you have the Hall of Fame this year, not the mainstream names that we're used to, but two of the pioneers in wheelchair tennis. Esther Vergeer, the GOAT, more than likely that's ever, you know, done that. And then Rick Draney as well. What's that going to be like this year? And I know it's always a special time to get tennis royalty together. And then you probably have the moments where I feel like where it's like, what am I doing here? <laughs> oh, for sure. There have been many a time where I've been like, I, I feel like I need to like, yeah. you know, the Homer Simpson gif, like shrinking back <laughs> into the bushes. That That is me a lot yeah. of the time. Um, no, I think it's going to be special the way that it always is. Um, I had the chance to talk to Esther last summer at the U.S. Open for the very first time um, because I do some features for the World Feed there. And she is incredible. I mean, and I already knew about her her resume, um, but to be able to talk to her in person and she's just an incredible representative of wheelchair tennis, but just tennis in general. And so I, I am excited for the fact that people get to know both of those athletes uh, in a new and different way. And the, the thing that everybody loves about the Hall of Fame, too, is just the fact that, as you mentioned in Delray Beach, the, the legends descend <laughs> on Newport. Yeah. And it's a really it's a neat time for them. It's a neat time for anyone who loves tennis. If you've never been to Newport. People ask me all the time, what's your favorite event of the year? And it's the Hall of Fame open yeah. side by side with the Hall of Fame induction. So come on down or up yeah. or over. Down, up, over. We got to get you on the court with more NFL quarterbacks too. It's Cousins last year. We'll just keep, you know, getting the breakdown of their mostly forehand games. So I, I know, I know. Well, you never know who's going to pop up at the Hall yeah. of Fame. That's the thing. And also I'm just throwing it out there now. Uh, Chris Eubanks and I were supposed to hit for the first time at the Hall of Fame open last year. I was supposed yes. to be his first hard court hit of the okay. year you got it up you made it up for it there we made yeah. up for it we made up for it but then i think john isner won a seven six six seven seven six match and i didn't finish until it was yeah. too late in yeah. the day it, um so maybe i don't know i haven't talked to chris about it but maybe um a henley eubanks chris, number, hit number two we'll see chris is an interesting guy it's hard to get practice time with him now based on who he's hitting with and we can t- and i can tell this story now because he told it on the air the day before he made his announcement of who he hit with last week, we were standing around our green room here, and he was like, someone asked him, who is he going to, are you practicing today? Are you playing? Yeah. Who are you hitting with? And he just nonchalantly says, I'm hitting with Naomi. <laughs> like, oh, okay. And I did a double take. I'm like, Naomi Campbell? Like, who, who are we talking about here? <laughs> you never know with yeah, Chris. Yeah. You never know. Uh, no, that's, that's awesome. And I'm so happy for him that he's doing so incredibly well. And I would also like to say that you, I appreciate, have, appreciated my TikToks and what it was like over a year ago at Indian Wells that I, that I made a point to explain to people that the guy has, has a Rolodex, his, his phone uh, contacts list is extensive (laughs) in terms of clout. Yeah, we hope, uh, and and seriously though, we do hope Jamie Foxx is doing well. I bring this up because, you know, he's had the medical episode, looks like it's going to be okay, but I mean, he got Jamie Foxx to watch him play tennis. And I wanted to ask Chris, there was a moment there where it was the rain delay and it was, oh, I'm great to see you. What's up? But it's like, I'm kind of working here. <laughs> like we can joke about yes. this later. 
Yes, you can see you can <laughs> yeah. see it light, like he sees yeah. the cameras. Yeah, it was it yeah. was a great moment. Um, good stuff. Do you have any quick thoughts on? I mean, the most loaded field of any event in the year, Stuttgart is just insane, and I understand that there's venue reasons and. But it, it's just nuts that round one, round two, you're getting top 15 matchups already. But any thoughts on that? We've seen Iga do well in her match coming back. Sabalenka is just a stud out there. Uh, Anshibor looking good again. Any thoughts on the elite of the elite at the WTA? I mean, I'm glad to see them all back out on European red clay. Because, listen, as I heard a whole lot in Houston... U.S. clay, and also as Stefano Sitsipas said, uh, U.S. clay is like a unicorn on a skateboard. <laughs> so, as we've heard many times between Charleston and Houston, clay in the U.S. is not the same as clay in Europe, and and probably indoor clay in Europe is not the same as outdoor clay in Europe. But we're getting closer, um, and I'm just I don't know. I'm glad to see them all back out there. Um, Chimani Cariol wrote a great article for. believe it's the guardian just talking about the fact that it is kind of too bad that you have all these top players at this one event and if you're not in the top what three ish or less you're probably not playing this week and and so that's a discussion for a whole nother day but really glad to see all these uh women back on tour back on the court yeah stabalenko looking great i want to see ego back at the top it's it's been fun and and i just mentioned Sabalenka plays Bedosa tomorrow. It's going to be a pretty good post-match handshake one way or the other. Big hug, probably going to set the record. We'll see. I love both of them. And, man, how far we've come, Mitch. Like, Mm -hmm. there was a time where, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that there was that iconic WTA Finals photo of them all sitting on the chairs looking in different directions at their phones. And the fact that, I mean, even at the WTA finals this past year, we had Anz Jabir dressing up in a Halloween costume <laughs> to scare yeah. the number one player in the world as the number two player in the world. Yeah. Scares to death. They hug. And it just, there was a moment. And I think, you know, to your point, the Savalika Badosa hug, there was just, it, it's just really neat to see the camaraderie. And do we want more trash talk per Jesse Pagula? Mm-hmm. I'm all for that as well, but it's nice to see the relationships. Would you say, and this is just the follow-up that came to me, um, Jabor, you've been around her more than I have, but it's like, I would describe it as like a friendly swagger. Like she walks in the room, she's comfortable with who she is, but there is like an extra pep in her step. Like it's, it's, it's chill in a way. It's hard to explain unless you've seen it. Anz is a unicorn. I, I don't know how, I think it would be so hard to be so many things to so mm-hmm. many people. I think that that could potentially turn into a burden, but it's not for her. I actually just recently, um, I had a friend who did a pickleball sort of exhibition with Ons uh, in Miami. And I commented on his Mm -hmm. photo with her and he said she made the whole event doing and ons has that effect on people and and i feel like that could be a lot to carry but she i actually messaged her when he told me that story i'm like you made this person's entire day and she wrote back she's like only you know that thank you so much for telling me and you know only good vibes and she really does sort of live that out on a daily basis it's not contrived Uh, and as you said she she knows who she is and when she walks into a room, she has just this incredible star power and the WTA is so lucky to have her. Last thing with Blair Henley, you've been very generous with your time uh, outside the tennis court. I want you to clear something up. How does one go about finding a hedgehog? 
for their <laughs> children. And do you feel bad about not giving Santa proper credit or is that just, this was- no, this absolutely was not, Mitch. <laughs> I researched that hedgehog. I read hedgehog forums. Santa is not getting credit for that. Absolutely not. Um, I, yeah, I did a lot of research. I don't, I don't like getting things that, and this goes for probably every area of my life. Like if too many people have it, I then don't want it. Okay. Uh, and so I was like, not many people have a hedgehog. <laughs> so that led me down this long winding path to hedgehog ownership. Uh, and let me tell you, I actually, I was going to do um, an Instagram update on life with a hedgehog because many people have asked. Yeah. I was, I really put the, like the welcoming of the hedgehog into the home that was out on social media. I've become more silent on the hedgehog ownership side since, uh, because owning a hedgehog has proven to be far more work than advertised as to the surprise of probably no one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, I won't go into detail. <laughs> They're dirtier than I thought, Mitch. Okay. Um, so anyway, I happy my girls are happy and listen, we don't have a trendy pet. It's yeah. a it's a unique pet and you, I'll give myself less points for that. You talk about being a contrarian. I don't know anybody that's even brought up who could possibly own a hedgehog. It hasn't even been on anybody's radar. So, um no, I it's it was a cool story uh and again, Instagram, TikTok, just a, a woman of very much in the social media department. So we look forward to kind of following your career with social media, but also with tennis, Blair. This has been a treat. Always one of my favorite times uh, of my podcast year talking to you. So best of luck with everything. And we'll we'll have to catch each other on the road and, you know, just tell some stories, the, the off-air ones, like the Rice Tennis, Fed Cup, VJK oh stories. <laughs> but, yeah, pleasure as always. Really appreciate you. You do phenomenal work, and I can't wait to see what's coming. Uh, thanks again for joining Tennis Channel Insight In. I love story time with Mitch. Um, so anytime, Mitch. And also, I sort of left people hanging by saying I had a great Indian Wells post-match interview oh, story. There you go. We're yeah. saving that for our next interview, okay? Okay, we will. Uh, Blair Henley, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the podcast. All right, huge thanks again to Blair Henley, one of my favorite people in the sport of tennis. It's always a true pleasure to talk to her, and uh, I'm a big supporter of everything she does, so I can't wait to see what the next challenges and opportunities are. But Blair, she's getting famous, though. I mean, that's Coco Golf, Jessica Pagula shout-outs. Those are, those are big-time recommendations and cosigns. But seriously, all thanks to Blair. Really appreciate the time she took. Now we're going to switch it up, talk to Vance Fermani, a sharp tennis mind, really looks at the game with an analytical point of view. We're recapping Monte Carlo. We're talking about Novak Djokovic's health, Andre Rublev, Holger Rune, Taylor Fritz, Rafael Nadal, the clouds with him. A lot of good discussions with Vance Fermani, and it's up next on Tennis Channel Insider. All right, welcome everybody to Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels is always here in the Santa Monica studios. Great show this week. Uh, joined now by my guest, uh, first time on the program, very popular online, a, a big voice in social media in the tennis community. He co-hosts the Tennis and Bagels podcast. You've seen his stuff on Twitter at the forefront of some analytics and some data-driven analysis. Has written for several publications. Uh, Vance Vermani, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for that intro, uh, Mitch. I feel all buttered up now. I'm uh, <laughs> super excited to be on Tennis Channel Inside In. Huge fan of this podcast and yeah, happy to talk about some action in Monte Carlo last week. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to get to that in a second. I do want to ask you, though, you know, because I like to hear the origin stories, players, analysts, everybody. 
I know your background a little bit. We've talked briefly. Um, you were a pretty competitive tennis player yourself, but how did you really discover the game? I know it when we talked, it doesn't really run in your family. You just kind of fell in love with it by chance, maybe by accident. How did your you know love affair with the sport of tennis come to be? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. It's uh, it's a little bit more of a non traditional way, I guess. How it's how it started. I was just um, you know, bored one summer and just uh, strolling around my neighborhood and not really that much to do when you're seven or eight years old. This was back in 2008. Um, and I just came across a couple of Prince tennis rackets lying near the local dumpster. Uh, and so I just, at that age, I just sort of picked it up. I was like, okay, I'll just, uh, you know, we have uh, some space in the garage. Yeah. And I thought I'll just, you know, get some rhythm going against the wall and just kind of get some reps and start hitting. And I didn't really know the technique or anything like that. And this sort of coincided uh, almost this, at the exact same weekend as the 2008 Wimbledon final between Nadal and Federer. And it just so happens, obviously, ex- extremely lucky that it, you know, it was one of the greatest matches of all time, still remembered and talked about forever in the history books. And from then on, I sort of just picked up a knack for playing and started training and getting more, uh, more competitive. And then slowly, I sort of veered a lot more into watching, I think, yeah. uh, watching and observing and analyzing different patterns in the game. And, and then I sort of started writing and then the online work came at a much later uh, stage. I'd say right when the pandemic hit, that's sort of when I picked up sort of going online and, uh, you know, building a whole tennis community out of yeah. it. So that's, I've been really fortunate to meet so many great people through that. And yeah, the journey continues lifelong. Yeah, I guess that's, there's weirder, worse things to pick up when you're bored. So tennis being one of the better ones, but of the better hobbies, but that's a cool story. And, and I know you're, you're modest about your career. You played at a pretty high level. And then like all of us, when we pick a sport out, unless we're a select few that go pro, there is that end of the line. My, my follow up to that would just be, what was it about how you were interpreting the game in the last couple of years, how you're analyzing things? What was it that you thought was maybe missing in the analysis or something that you could add in terms of how you view a match and how you could break stuff down in a different way through data and analysis. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it, it just sort of comes through watching from a, from a different lens. I think, you know, when you're growing up and you're a kid, you're sort of attracted to a few personalities in the game and sort of the more dominant personalities, because they're the ones winning most of the masters, 1000s, most of the slams. We lived in a golden era with the big three, with Serena Williams, with Andy Murray, with players like that, who just, week upon week they had that insane consistency mm-hmm. so it just once you started seeing some new figures coming to the game and you started seeing you know especially the last two or three years a lot more depth varied across both tours mm-hmm. and a lot more you know some uncertainty mixture of different results you know being the sort of hard-grained big three fan yeah. that i was i started to sort of expand and go beyond a few subset of players and really just analyze the tour as a whole and just talk a lot more about the landscape about how uh, you know, different things in, in the game are changing, maybe, uh, you know, a few more trends. And then you just start sort of observing some different weird statistical anomalies and maybe yeah. some stats that, you you know, maybe aren't mentioned quite so frequently on TV. But if you start drawing some parallels or maybe you just remember who played who in the draw and you just sort of keep track of results that way, uh, I think it's it's not so much of a surprise when you see a certain player break right. through for instance. Right. I think a lot of us that don't have the pro level experience want to know why certain things happen. And as you said, you know, hundred percent true, the big three, they kind of dominated the field with Andy Murray as a big four, but then you get this new era where it's at least right now, we've got some new faces that are coming up, but we're going to see who steps out and there's a good way to use data to maybe study and kind of make some educated predictions. 
as to who's going to do just that. Going to the past weekend, the first Masters Clay event of the 2023, th- 2023 season on the men's side, Andre Rublev gets his first Masters 1000 title. He's been known, justifiably so, as the king of the 500 level. He made the final of this event two years ago where he lost to Sitsipas. He did it. He gets to the top of this tournament. And Vance, he did it the hard way. I mean, his path to get there was not easy. Had a lot of battles. Taylor Fritz and then Holger Rune. Some, some great matches, some high drama, high level of uh, tension, to say the least. But how was he able to, looking at the Fritz match and then looking at the Holger match, conquer this tournament, those opponents, when there were times in both matches as you could clearly see he wasn't playing his big tennis? How did he flip the switch, not playing his best, to get the job done and hoist the trophy? Yeah, I, I mean, the, what you said is absolutely spot on. They were not easy matches at, at all. I mean, he was down a set in, in his first round against Hami Munar as well. And then once he sort of climbed his, came his, climbed his way through the path into the semis, I think that's when it became his mental fortitude was really put to the test. And, you know, normally you don't associate poise and patience and calmness and yeah. things like nerve management and steadiness with a guy like Andre Rublev. We know how uh, things in his personality that make him super endearing. Yeah. Uh, he's super emotional as a character, but oftentimes we've seen sometimes in matches, particularly the last couple of years in these big stage stages where he has a little bit of a mental block, mm-hmm. I think. And, you know, particularly having been to a couple of Masters 1000s before, he just broke through last year and made the semifinals of Turin, uh, which yeah. he hadn't done before. This is a guy who's been a top 10 player mm-hmm. for, you know, the better part of the last three years. It's been impressive because his floor is so high. Yeah. But now the question is, how did he take that? And how did he manage his nerves in the biggest moments? Right. Uh, particularly the third set against Taylor Fritz. And I think um, having played Fritz very tight and having lost to him in the in the last three times they played at Masters 1000 level, this time he felt like the conditions were more in his favor. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you had the rain delay. You had Fritz sort of playing extremely um, unsure about his shot making, particularly in the third set. Um, I felt like he was pulling the trigger a bit too early on certain shots. Yeah. Uh, whereas in the, in the first set, you know, Fritz kind of stole it with his, with his defense. And for him... Mm-hmm. Playing on clay, you know, getting this far, it was a huge step. But Rublev was really able to, I think, impose himself backhand to backhand as well. That was that's uh, his, a big point. I mean, I started to cut you off there, but I think the backhand to backhand is not something you'd associate with. He's put the work in to improve what we'd call deficiencies of his game. Serve's gotten a little better, still not the quite elite level, but that's improved backhand to backhand. You know, it's poetic for me because he wins the match against Holger. I thought from the outside, what changed when I noticed the change and maybe Rubov's ability to rein it in was the Australian Open this year. He's playing Holger there. He's, he blows a chance basically to serve for it, goes up against match points down, all this stuff happens. The old Rubov might have just gone away, might have just started screaming and lost some stuff. He's really, you know, and he's still a young guy, 25, 26 years old. He's still harnessing things. And I think he's shown a lot of mental growth the last couple of years, which might have been the difference. He's... He's a fighter. I know that runs in his family with his dad having a boxing background, but he is somebody that continually fights. We might not be able to say that about every player on tour, but he's locking himself in more. And I think that was such a huge win in Australia that it kept going here. And in these close matchups where there's brain delays, where there's wind, where there's stuff going on across the net with his opponent, he was just locked in and mentally sound. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it starts in the, in the third set against Runa when he's down one, four, 30, 40 and, <laughs> Uh, you know, normally he can be quite predictable with his serve locations and his second serve in particular is not known for being one of the fastest on the tour. He has yeah. the slowest uh, average miles per hour speed and generally always goes to the backhand. But on that occasion, he went down the tee. He surprised Runa a little bit 
Bruno was not able to back up in time and hit get enough depth on his forehand to then come back to neutral and uh, and then have a chance in the rally. And once he sort of held in that game, Bruno was struggling quite a bit physically, and but he absolutely capitalized. I thought his yeah. backhand really took over the last five or six games of that match. He was really not only using it as a shield defensively, yeah. but uh, he was actually doing some damage with it and sort of locking Runa in that backhand corner and forcing him to pull the trigger on certain shots that he might not yeah. always uh, feel as comfortable going off of, especially yeah. if he had his legs uh, underneath him. And I think Ruba really sensed that he recognized it. And the second serve, I mean, he won 52% of his second serve points. Mm-hmm. And anytime you're above 50% and you're under Ruba, you absolutely take that because uh, particularly on clay. And I think there's something to be said for his, because his game style, because he maybe doesn't have, let's say the repertoire of an Alcaraz or a Sitsipas or players like that, or even a Lorenzo Musetti, players who play with a lot more variation and variety and mixing spins up. What he does have is a solid, reliable game plan yeah. under pressure because you kind of know what's coming, but also he's so good at that high margin aggression mm-hmm. game style where he's sort of hitting inside in, inside out backhand, mm-hmm. backhands and forehands, you know, in the ad corner yeah. and he just doesn't really give away. I think he doesn't really give up in those moments. He's very underrated, uh-huh. I think, as a competitor. That's inner self-belief yeah. and steeliness is always there, even if you might not see it because he's not always the right. most confident guy he actually yeah even if he doesn't have like yeah. would, would you say it's like as many tools in his tool bag is that <laughs> yeah to quote second yeah. Sin- Although like, Sin- i gotta give props to Sitsipas today he did say that he shouldn't have said that he gave rubov props and said which i've always been on the side of players are heated after losses they're gonna say stuff they don't mean i'm glad Sitsipas was able to you know acknowledge that he was a little out of his mind in that moment and move on yeah. there um, Absolutely. And the rest yeah. of the tour is, you know, such great friends with them. It's so great to see yeah. that outpouring of um, emotion just from everyone in social media because they right. know how hard he's worked for this moment. I mean, this was his 40th Masters 1000 played and yeah. uh, you know, he's really put in the hard, hard yards. And of course, he's, yeah. you know, super endearing. And I just love his post-match interviews afterwards you know, he's where he's just super honest and just tells it how it is. He's the best. Uh, again, props to him and, and putting himself in the mix as a factor in the clay court season leading up to the role of the Roland Garros. I want to talk to you, Vance, now about Holger Runa. A lot to discuss about this guy, and, and we'll start with the positives, right? There's something dynamic about this kid, his game, his personality, his flair. He's becoming one of the most 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 watched guys in, must-watch guys in men's tennis. And I think a lot of that has to do, first and foremost, with the game. Say what you want, and we will hear in a second about some of the other stuff. But the game is there. The strides he's made from number 79 in the world to now up to number 7. He's got a beautiful, beautiful forehand. He pummels return or serves that aren't in the wheelhouse where they should be. And he can finish at the net very, very beautifully. I think we got to start there. Give credit where credit's due. There's a lot of good personalities in tennis, but very few have the level of skill that this guy has. You, you hit the nail on the head, absolutely, with your last point. He really backs up what he's saying, on the, and he backs up his encore demeanor with a serious elite game. He has that sort of unquantifiable X factor. You know, the arm is extremely explosive, lively, lively in it, but I love the intelligence that he also has in his game, you know, amidst the massive forehands and the aggressive second serve returns. He has, you know, such, such good deft touch on his backhand drop yeah. shot as well, and he can hit beautiful open stance backhands on the on the dead run his forehand i like i like the variation that he has on his forehand because he can also hit super difficult pacey sort of on the run forehands where mm-hmm. he injects loads of pace but he can also just on a clay court he can buy himself a little bit of that extra time and loop it up high and get it to the opponent's backhand and then yeah. just sort of dictate from there i think you know as long as he just 
with some more maturity when he just learns to relax a little bit and stay a little bit calmer and not get so uptight. I think I, you know, I was yeah. on a podcast with Steve, Steve Flink and he, he sort of described him as like highly strung and that's a good just, way. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, good he's way sort of like a, a fireball of energy, like just very ex- ambitious, extremely energetic. And, you know, at times, you know, can be a little bit brash or just sort of unaware of how he's coming across. But I think, you know, Props to him because he's unafraid to be his authentic self. And, you know, that kind of uh, energy really helped him in that match, particularly against Sinner. So the last two sets where so, he was able to feed off of that. Yeah, he's not afraid of anybody. And I love that about him. And I think the maturity will happen. He's still super young. There's moments, you know, going with the, going against the crowd when he's getting booed. Okay, like I get that. Some of the stuff with the opposing players. And I think that will come. I, I don't think it's that that big of a deal. I think he is his authentic self. My critique right now, and this is, you know, nitpicking to a point, there are times when I don't feel like he's in the fight enough where he's not only getting broken or losing or, or losing a return game, but it's at love. It's, you know, air mailing shots like into the wall. You know, and that might have been the difference with Rublev is that even when he was down in that match, there was still a battling. And again, this could come with more experience and more chances to be a professional tennis player. But that's the part of his game where I think maybe it's a physical issue of getting in a little bit better elite shape. But there were times when he would lose these games going away. And I think that's the stuff to stay in the fight more that'll make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we saw it a little bit already in Australia when these two played. And, you know, he, he had many, many leads in that fifth set. Obviously, you know, a couple of match points, 5-2, led, I think, 7-2 and 5-0 in the tiebreak as well. But to your point, I think he just gets a little bit too eager and ambitious in certain moments. And then there's other times where I think his physical durability is still just yeah. a little bit of a little bit of a concern because that sort of bleeds into his shot selection and he sort of goes for broke on certain shots and and it's kind of spirals out of control. And I think that spiraling will just sort of he's just sort of sort of has to learn to pace himself yeah. with and and sort of yeah take his time in between points. I, I, it was very strange because at four one he sort of asked for the salts and asked for the trainer <laughs> yeah. and he you know he's he, when he was serving at four two this wasn't you could tell from his body language, this wasn't a guy who was leading in the scoreboard yeah. as, you know, if you had just turned on the TV for the first time. So I think there's still some work to do sort of in that, uh, like backing up those big wins, you know, in a best of five setting. I think that's where the concern would lie for me just yet, because I think the game is there, the talent is there and the full repertoire is there. But now it's just a matter of honing in these finer details mm-hmm. with the physical durability and shot selection. When you look at the other semifinals, Vanch, I mean, you're looking at Sinner and Fritz, who I know it didn't go their way. They had matches they felt like they could win and they didn't win. I don't want to be Mr. Motivational Speaker here, but this is a good step for both of these players. It's also the first step on a very long clay court season. So I think it's I think it's a tough loss. Anytime you lose, it's going to leave a bad taste in your mouth. But for each of them, Sinner right there showing his brilliance on clay and Fritz just progressively getting better and more professional and, you know, being a legit clay court player now too, all-purpose player. I think there's going to be a lot of positives these two young players take away. Yeah, absolutely. For Yannick Sinner, I mean, he's made now the semifinals of Indian Wells, Miami, and Monte Carlo, became the youngest player ever to do that in the open era. And the only other players to really do that in the single season are the big four. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, you know, and he's put himself right up there in the top five. Uh, he's constantly improving. I love the tinkering that he's done on a serve, particularly the last couple of years. Um, he's become more explosive and dynamic and sort of working on, you know, adding some more variation to his game. And this, the serve is getting a little as much better than it used to be a couple of years ago. So I'm still very encouraged and bullish by him. He's losing a little bit too many of these close matches right now. But I think with time, he's absolutely going to flip the script. You know, we already saw how close he was last year. And I think 
uh, it's just a matter of time for Sinner. I wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me if he picked up a Masters 1000 win this year or, you know, made the semifinals of a, of a major as those are clearly the next steps. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think Sinner is one of the guys to keep an eye on um, before we wrap up the Monte Carlo discussion and look ahead to what's happening. Uh, I want to get your take on the Medvedev-Zverev situation. Lots been said, lot happened. There's there's too much to break down. But I think the long and short of it, I mean, there's two parts of this for me. One being, I don't understand Zverev still going over a bathroom break that was inconsequential to the match. That's number one, smaller term picture. Number two being, I think it is kind of good to have people that aren't friends playing high-level tennis. So I'm taking myself out of it and just whatever the true story is. It's just kind of nice that not everyone's best friends out there. How do you break down what we saw and, you know, this budding rivalry now, 8-6 Medvedev head-to-head in that one, but with what went down between Medvedev and Zverev. Yeah, it was a very sort of spicy affair that both, uh, you know, incidents took place on the court as well as in the press room. But, you know, on the court, you know, Zverev cited that he was unhappy about Medvedev, sort of his behavior, like breaking the stick on the net court <laughs> and then taking a, taking a bathroom break in the third set, which, I mean, was in under 90 seconds and he was back very quickly. And uh, the strange part about that was is that you know, he held serve very easily the next game and then broke. So it's not as if his momentum was completely disrupted. And no, and I think, you know, Medvedev obviously had his brilliant comebacks in the um, <laughs> press room afterwards yeah. and, you know, said, sort of compared him his comments to uh, some of the other peers and Karen <laughs> and Diego and yeah. Rubev and players like that. And he sort of said, you need to look at yourself in the mirror mm. and, you know, some, some really nice sort of... Uh, so some really nice ways of uh, of going about it because he also acknowledged that you know in the heat of moment you can say certain things yeah. that uh, right after right after the loss but then he just sort of step by step took the aggro and broke it down and if you're gonna if you're gonna hit Medvedev with these uh, with these sort of things yeah. you better be really good because he's excellent at playing this kind of playing this type of role because he's he's just so so articulate yeah and uh, these are two players who I'm actually curious about their individual clay court seasons coming up. Medvedev says he doesn't like it, kind of downplays him stuff. I think it's a tactic. I've been on the record saying that. I think he's much better than he gives himself credit for on the clay, and he's shown that. Zverev was a bona fide top three or four clay court player in the world. The health, the confidence that comes with that, is he getting back to normal? It seems like he's getting there. So we'll see if both those players get there. And then one other player to just monitor what they're doing. Vance, where are you at with Stefano Tsitsipas? has had some struggles, is open about the shoulder, taking time to get there. French Open finalist a year or two years ago, rather, getting to that mountaintop. But where are we at with Tsitsipas, his health, and him as a contender in the clay season? Yeah, so, I mean, for Stefanos, it was, uh, you know, I don't think he had the best sort of rhythm in Monte Carlo because his his first round was cut a bit short. Uh, And then Nicholas Yari, he didn't get the whole sort of baseline rhythm that he would have wanted. And I thought Fritz played an absolutely fantastic match to beat him in the... Uh, beat him in the quarters, uh, both tactically and I think took advantage of uh, some, so, you know, with the backhand still not being a, sort of up to par on the on the clay yet, uh, not having those reps. Played very few matches since Australia. Of course, we know what happened with the with the sunshine swing as well. But I think this week is going to be very key for Stefanos in Barcelona. Obviously, he's been to the final here twice. Uh, he loves playing here, and uh, he's had success in all those big clay court events. So I yeah. expect him to sort of build form as the. Uh, weeks go on and I still expect him to be a four, number four or number five contender at uh, at Roland Garros per, health permitting which I think uh, he, he seems to be more 
more or less pain-free now. So I think that's the positive that you take away if you're Sitsipas. And for Zverev, obviously, it's still he's still somewhat early in his comeback, but he showed mm-hmm. a lot of great signs in Dubai and Indian Wells, and mm-hmm. he seems to really be at 90, 90 to 95% of his physical game, I would say. It's mm-hmm. just a question of can he pick, get the big wins and can he close in on these big yeah. big matches, particularly these, these two matches against Medvedev where he had uh, loads of opportunities. But uh, clearly we know last year he was you know, pushing Rafa to the brink and playing some of his best tennis, obviously beating yeah. Carlos and at the French. So, Yeah, sometimes you just have to give credit to the other side of the net in Tsitsipas' case. And uh, that's a good point in terms of match play. Sometimes you don't want that retirement, right? When it's the bigger goal in mind, you want to get those reps out there. More with Vance Vermani here on Tennis Channel Insight. And, well, looking at Novak Djokovic, because he was a player that made his return after not playing in the Sunshine Double, loses to Musetti early, has the sleeve on his arm. There's the issues there. His serve numbers were a little down. On one hand, anytime someone is protecting an arm like that, it is cause for concern. On the other hand, we know what the end goal is here. We know Djokovic is kind of rounded into form would be a way to put it, with Monte Carlo being his least successful clay event. Anything at all, in your opinion, Vance, that we should be concerned about, concerned about as he goes into the home tournament in Serbia and then tries to win another Roland Garros? Um, I think my concern would just be how does the elbow hold up? Um, just because it was a little surprising to see the compression sleeve, particularly after his first round, where I thought he played much better in the second set. And you thought, okay, now maybe the rest is slowly starting to get behind him and he was up a set in a set in four two against Musetti. Obviously, Musetti is certainly a player who can, uh, you know, tr- trouble Djokovic, ask uh, a lot of questions of his finishing power, particularly on his mm-hmm. forehand. And we saw his serve; he was broken eight times and <laughs> some double faults, and just kicking off a lot of that rust because he hasn't played in five or six weeks. But I expect him to get some more matches in this week, and then we'll see about Madrid. I think it's just that's going to be something to monitor as well: is yeah. does he play in Madrid and Rome? Because Traditionally, Rome and Roland Garros is where he's, he really starts to peak and get his game to the next level. Like yeah. we saw last year, it started with a match against Alcaraz in Madrid, but then he won Rome, and then it was really only Nadal yeah. in a tight four-setter who stopped him at Roland Garros. So. I love that Musetti was, or I love that Djokovic gave Musetti credit, didn't use the injury as an excuse. And you know it, whether or not that was something to monitor, which I think we will, you're right. Rome is where it turns into form and then into Roland Garros. He is a lot like Rafa in that regard, a well-oiled machine that needs time to kind of rev up and get to his peak performance. So I guess we'll see in Serbia, the home tournament at his tennis foundation, what that's going to look like. Uh, that field itself. And, you know, looking at the kind of Serbia field, we were one match away from Stan and Djokovic there. Uh, instead, he, you know, Stan bows out. But I'm not necessarily looking forward to or looking at the results of who Djokovic plays or how he does there. But there's actually some game players in this field with Chorich, with Rublev. So he could get some pretty big match play in his home event. Yeah, absolutely. And last year we saw a final between Rublev and 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 Djokovic. And that really, uh, and, and this wasn't an easy event for him last year. And it's a similar sort of field again uh, with a lot of uh, Serbian players and Chorich and mm-hmm. Rublev. And they all really sort of pushed Djokovic last year, but it was a great way for him to get that those match reps and rhythm in and just sort of play long matches and just work out the physical issues that he's having yeah. and maybe just feel a lot better about his game because was it yeah, two, like was I, it two I, years I think, ago that he played uh that he played the Russian Karatsev in in Serbia? That was yes. the year he won the French Open too. So that was like the best thing that happened to him, just play a three hour match and get a lot yeah, of play experience. It was, it was totally perfect because yeah. um yeah, just another data point, I guess. When, yeah. you're, when you're a player like this and you're just so he's just sort of calibrating yeah. and 
he's looking to be at peak absolute physical mm-hmm. fitness because we know the main one that matters is yeah. His role. So I, I want to ask you this question. We brought up a lot of names. We haven't talked about Alcaraz. We haven't talked about Casper Ruud, last year's clay court finalist. You mentioned before about what the, the levels are. So if we were going to go like your top five, doesn't even have to necessarily be in order, but who are the contenders? What's the pecking order look like for Roland Garros contenders? And there could even be groups and levels to it. But I know Rafa's a wild card too, based on his health. But what's it look like to you at this moment? Subject to change, of course going into RG 2023? Yeah, it's a very tricky one because uh, it doesn't seem like Carlos and Novak are really ever in the same draw. And <laughs> yeah, that, and yeah. those would be my two sort of leading contenders. Okay. Um, you know, Rafa not permitting, obviously, if Rafa's mm-hmm. back healthy and in the field, he, he's number one yeah. for me until okay. anything else happens <laughs> otherwise. But, you know, right now, I'd probably say, I'd probably say Carlos because mm-hmm. I'm maybe the most sure that at this moment, you know, watching his match today in Barcelona, and the question for him is just, can he be healthy mm-hmm. enough to play with the nagging injuries and those start yeah. stop things, can he be healthy enough to play Barcelona, Madrid, Rome, and hundred percent? So, you, but because of yeah. because of that, I still maybe have him as number one if I was to do a power ranking right now. You obviously have to respect Djokovic's incredible success and his one having won the title twice and uh, his pedigree. But at the moment, I might have him number two just because mm. of the concern with the with the elbow. Yeah, I can't go that far just yet, and I love Carlos and everything that he does. There's there's only, I mean, today he won in 62 minutes or something like that, and he's won this term before, beat Sitsipas pretty cleanly. There's two things to to break down why I have it this way. One being that Djokovic, best of five, still going to trust him until I see somebody beat him other than Nadal, obviously, on the clay. The other thing is the point you brought up. Like, I want to know how, and maybe this is another question, how can Alcaraz stay healthy for this long run because we know in any one match any one tournament he's got the goods to just dazzle when you know dismantle the field when that forehand's going timed with the grunt it's like a it's like a you know a bomb being dropped it's like a sledgehammer going off but I do think though that maybe maybe there's ways and, and maybe you can comment on this too that he can kind of you know tighten things up in terms of staying healthy and and peaking like Djokovic and Nadal have done and Federer before them at majors how can Alcaraz stay fresh enough to not have another injury break, which he's had a couple times recently? Yeah, I mean, obviously he has a very explosive game and you don't want to take away the never say die hard attitude of, and the point-by-point mentality, which he clearly goes about it because every single shot uh, he's mm-hmm. going to want to track down, mm-hmm. whether it be impossible shots that you know no human on the planet, not even Alcaraz has a chance of getting there, but he's going to absolutely try. Mm-hmm. And so that's the thing that I would just... Um, I would just maybe caution him to just let a few points go. You know, maybe when you're up 40 low or you're down the 40 and, you know, you want to be a little bit mindful in that moment of maybe not overdoing a split step mm-hmm. or like when he hurt, when he hurt his hand, you know, diving for a return mm-hmm. basically on the, on the ad side against Sinner, stuff like that. It's in those, in the minute moments yep. where you can't really, you have a split second and it's, mm-hmm. it's all about quick reaction time. And that's where I would just caution Alcaraz to play it a little bit on the safe side. But at the same time, you don't want to mess with the whole right. uh, psychology of what has gotten him so far. Because, uh, yeah, if you start doing yeah. that, then that could have maybe some other longer term oh. implications. But it's a good point yeah. you bring up, especially about the, the injuries. Maybe it's get to the net a little more, you know, try to play some shorter points and just work on that. And, you know, it's yeah. we'll so see what, a little bit yeah. more on his serve as well, because, yeah. you know, at the U.S. Open, uh, you yeah. know, he really beefed up his serve, mm-hmm. particularly in the fourth set. And that yeah. was one of the best serving sets I've ever seen from Alcaraz. It's going to be a. Maybe a little harder to do that on the clay, but I think having won Madrid and the altitude and yeah. such a great kick serve that he has, 
he has ways of winning short points as well, which is nice. Depending how Barcelona and Madrid go, which should be very long, we'll see if he plays Rome. That's the other thing. Is that going to be the event where he takes a refresher like Iga did, Iga Spiontek did last year to kind of take a break and then win the French Open? So something to see there. Uh, before we wrap this up, I do want to get your thoughts, Vanch, on Casper uh, Ruud's win over Ben Shelton today. Ben Shelton into the top 40. Casper Ruud wins in straight sets. First set was 6-1. Second set, a 7-6 tiebreaker finish where Ben Shelton actually broke back when Rude was serving for the match. But on the one hand, for Ben Shelton, this is a kid where I'm starting to see what the hype is about on clay specifically. His game does really translate. With that being said, still very raw, still a lot of stuff to work on at the elite level. Some things to be coached up on, but I'm starting to see, as I'm sure you are, why his game, game translates on the clay. Because he can do a lot of good things out there that very few can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I saw it in some of the matches he played, even though he lost to Dominic Team in, in Estoril, the match before that and the match today as well. He has a he has an amazing kick serve. The the serve is an absolute joke. I mean, you ask uh, certain college players who played against him and you know the way he's able to get the ball way out of the opponent's strike zone, both with height but also with his incredible placement on both the deuce side and the ad side. And then he has such really nice deft touch and hands at the net as well to complement it. And he's starting to learn a little bit of the intricacies of sliding and changing direction. And that's been sort of fun to watch him (laughs) observe. I almost don't even care at all about his results this clay court season because he's just so new uh, on the block. But it's just so nice to see his game against the very best because you you see the weapons that he has and you you see why he got to 40 in the world. And that Australian Open is uh, more than enough (laughs) for this year for him to not too concerned about his... Yeah, he can run around that, run around and get to that forehand, and it's pre- pretty beautiful to watch. And, and the kick serve, you're right. I watched. Um, I think it was Isner who John Isner who said his favorite court to serve on is one of the outs, outer courts. I think Madrid. It was one of the clay court events, and he just it, it cuts people by surprise. He's like, if I can kick it high, there's not a lot of room there on the dirt. It's going to be very tough to return. So I'm with you yeah. there, Ben Shelton. It's a process. It's still ongoing. Very fun to watch for Casper Ruud, who, by the way was probably circling this one to get him back for the start of the Shelton rise last year in Cincinnati. Yeah. He gets the, he gets the job done, and much has been said, and he even said it himself, Vance, with how he would have handled the offseason differently. Still just 20th in the race, uh, working his way up as the number four player to the ATP finals again. But you watch him on clay, and you know that's exactly what the doctor ordered. It's a perfect medicine for him to get back on track. How he plays, how his game is suited for the clay is still very beautiful. And it's another thing where I don't think we're, you know, we're talking about tiers of players. Casper Root is a bona fide top five clay court player. Might not be the prettiest, flashiest game, but his game fits his surface so well. Yeah, his game is tailor-made for the surface, obviously, with the super heavy forehand that he has that he can just boss around and dictate points with and with the deep return position. But he's also proven that he can make some adjustments as well in his game and mix up the return position, maybe block a few more returns, rely he also moves better than better on clay and slides and change directions better and uh, I thought the win in Estoril was still pretty big on him obviously the knock on him is always you know playing these clay 250s and winning so many of them but I actually think that was really really good for his confidence to to pick up four match wins like that in a row and just sort of get back in the groove groove Mm -hmm. of things and Mm -hmm. if he if this week goes well for him uh, you know I could definitely see him making a push in Rome and still be at the second second be in the final weekend of, of Paris depending on how the draw shakes out so he's absolutely still in my 
top uh, six or seven contenders, let's say. So, yeah, let's just put a button on that. If it's Djokovic, Alcaraz with Nadal is like that, you know, enigma floating around. What's yeah. the very next tier like and how many people are on it after those three names? Yeah, so for me, it probably goes Sitsipas and Rude. On um, the same level, yeah, okay. Sitsipas and Zverev and Rude and Sinner. That would oh. be sort of my next okay. tier. Those guys. And it's, and, and okay, so I guess you're saying that they could still separate themselves in the next couple of weeks, but right now, yeah, I think I think that's fair, but I will say Sitsipas will be the one I need to see, see it more quicker because mm-hmm. we just haven't seen the high level. I would say Holger's though right there because Holger's going to be in the mix oh, yeah. for all these two. Yeah, Hol- yes, Hol- Holger absolutely as well. I still think uh, I think Clay is Holger's best surface actually because uh, that's the one where he's had the most success. Obviously, the Munich title and Roland Garros quarterfinals last year, and mm-hmm. now he's got really really big wins on the surface too. And the game uh, absolutely translates. I have a few reservations perhaps about the best of five and the physical durability, but that's uh, that's separate from his skills, absolutely. Do you see this becoming very top-heavy in Barcelona with Alcaraz, with Rude, with Tsitsipas? Do you think we're going to be looking at, I don't want to say all chalk, but probably one of those three or one of the big contenders getting all going all the way and holding the trophy at the end of it? Yeah, I think it would surprise me if um, someone other than those names actually ended up winning, mm-hmm. the, tro- winning the trophy at the end. Um, certainly with certainly with uh, with Carlos, uh, I'm I'm excited to see perhaps him against potentially Davidovich Fokina. I think that could be mm. a really, really fascinating clash with Fokina excelling on, on clay in the past. And he sort of has the explosiveness and amazing uh, flair in his game that can actually uh, maybe cause some problems for some top players. So I'm interested in that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I personally hope we get, we get to see some of these big names in the, in the final weekend, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm also looking at a guy like Cam Nori. He's super tough <laughs> as nails on the clay and, you know, even players like Sinner and Schwartzman, that should be a fun match to watch yep. tomorrow, I guess. And and you know, potentially if we get another Sinner versus Alcaraz <laughs> match at the end of the weekend, I'm, no one would complain about that, right? No, they wouldn't. They definitely wouldn't. Uh, and we see this time of year, especially at the heights of any level of tennis. But it's how you process these losses and move forward because there is only one winner. And we saw Francis Tiafo lose to Rusevori. I bring that up because it wasn't Tiafo's best match down the stretch. New uncharted territory for him as a as a new top guy knocking on the door of the top 10. It's going to be how you handle these losses and how you get ready. So, you know, whether it's Tiafo going forward into next week or Sitsipas coming off of injuries, Alexander Zverev playing in his home tournament in Germany, there's opportunities here to build some momentum, but we know how process-oriented everything is. So all roads lead to, yeah. lead to Roland Garros, but this week is is very, very tricky on the tennis calendar. Yeah, completely. And of course, we haven't even mentioned Taylor Fritz, who obviously, you know, incredible run in in Monte Carlo, but he's really acclimated himself to, uh, you know, improving continually on the dirt. And, uh, you know, I was very bullish at the start of Monte Carlo that uh, he could be in the final weekend. And Mm -hmm. I think I even predicted him into my into my final just because I like the extra time the clay gives him. Yeah. And we know how how much better he is now uh, with his athleticism and his movement, especially in the corners credit to Mike Russell and all the great coaches that he has in, uh, in his team, but it really feels like he's that power that he has, especially on his forehand, which has improved quite a bit in the last two years. And obviously with the serve and just how smart he is tactically um, and making in, in match, mid-match adjustments and how clutch he's been this year is 
week in and week out as a competitor, yeah. 13 and two in tie breaks and a lot of different stats that really point to, I think, Fritz yeah. being a top 10 player on the surface as well. So if we were doing tiers, yeah. I might have him right at the top of your tier three. Let's I have say. to put Rublev somewhere in there. I mean, he did just win the tournament. We got to end it with that. You know, Rublev's got to be, you know, in the mix too. So there, there's yep. no shortage of contenders, which is so great this time of year. We've got some new faces emerging. Um, it's yeah. really great. All right, well, and of course, there's the storyline of Dominic team as well this week and potential yeah. team versus Fritz clash, which would be fascinating for both guys to know where they're at. It really would. Uh, Vance Fermani, really appreciate you coming on the show. Big fan of yours on Twitter and your tennis and bagels podcast as well. We'll make sure to follow you for all your uh, info. What's the Twitter handle? And then what do you got going on uh, in the future? Yeah. So my Twitter is at uh, bunch V two K two and the letter K like 2000 mm -hmm. basically. And then, uh, you know, you can also check out uh, talking tennis, which is a YouTube channel. And I do some commentary for them and some post-match pre-match analysis as well. So th they've got some good content over there where usually I'm pretty heavily featured in the next coming weeks, especially during the clay season. So that'll be, that's kind of mostly what I have going. And then of course, check out the podcast at tennis and bagels as well. And uh, yeah, and I appreciate you so much for Mitch for having me. It was an absolute blast, uh, really enjoyable discussion, and love all the amazing guests that you bring on to the show. Appreciate that a ton. We'll have to have you back on. Uh, best of luck with everything, and, and enjoy the clay court season as much as I am. Uh, Vance Romani, thanks for coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. Thanks, really enjoyed it. An enormous thanks to both guests, Blair Henley and Vance Vermonti, for appearing on this week's episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. And a reminder that you can catch the entire catalog of episodes on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. It's really simple. Just go to tennis.com slash podcasts. You'll see this show. You'll see the entire outstanding collection of shows we have on our network. You can also find us on all your podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, now iHeart Podcasts. The possibilities are endless. We aim to please as we proceed to give you what you need in the tennis world. My name is Mitch Michaels. Thank you again for listening. We're back next week, same day of the week, every Thursday. The road to Roland Garros heating up. We got Madrid next week. A little over a month now. The road to Roland Garros will be here. Can't wait to break down all the clay court action. Thanks again for listening. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. We'll see you next week.